you're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. TNL is a production of Young Clergy Network, a ministry of OKC First Church of the Nazarene, committed to listening to, collaborating with, and empowering young pastors over at youngclergy.net. Today on the podcast, Reverend Patrick Engel from Faith Community Church of the Nazarene in Durango, Colorado. Thanks for all you do for young pastors, and thanks for tuning in. Engel, lead pastor at Faith Community Church of the Nazarene in Durango, Colorado. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Britt. <laughs> okay, so the first question I ask everybody Sorry, I'm is... Pulling, I'm pouring a cup of coffee right now. Oh, no, that's okay. I don't mean to interrupt you. I, I, I approve of coffee. Um, talk to me about <laughs> how you ended up in the Church of the Nazarene. It was one of those things where my family and I had been a part of uh, Southern Baptist Church when, I guess, when, when I was born. Um, and then I like to always joke that the way that Southern Baptists plant churches is that they have church splits because it happened like four times in the church that I was attending before I was in fourth grade. Oh, wow. And like by this fourth church split, um, and I don't mean any offense to any of my Southern Baptist friends. I don't know if they're going to be listening to this Nazarene Life. It's kind of a niche <laughs> podcast. Sure. But just uh, anyway. Um, so I think by that fourth split, my parents were kind of just tired. Um, and my brothers, who are quite a bit older than me, and they were looking for something different um and one of them was kind of on the verge of changing his views on god and life anyway so my parents were trying to support him Mm. and they went to this nazarene church um because my brothers had some friends in the youth group so i just ended up following um and so that was just the church that i found myself in um growing up it was in it was in denver and so it was a really big church it was denver first church of the nazarene Mm. and it was it so we went we came from like this small church that had just like gone through a split to this church that was ginormous and then we um then i just kind of stuck around um fourth grade was really when i when i started to kind of think a little bit more independently um I've never really had like a conversion experience, uh, but I have had moments where I realized that the Christian faith is something that I want to be a part of. And it was that those moments were cultivated because of the Church of the Nazarene Mm. um, and because of the relationships that I had in Denver. And some of those relationships led me to southern nazarene university where i was trained even more where we had greek class together i don't know if you remember that yes of course um with dr tashjin um and yeah that's kind of how i think i ended up in the church of the nazarene kind of just by accident well tell me about your call to ministry how did you end up feeling like you wanted to be a pastor so i in in seventh grade, my oldest brother went on like this um, Nietzsche like bend where everything was meaningless mm. because he misread Nietzsche and he didn't read him good enough, but he was only a junior in college, so you can't blame him for that. But he, um, he uh, started talking about how everything was meaningless, um, disavowed God. Mm he was also going to Southern Nazarene university at the time. And he was having like, I guess he was just changing his faith and his outlook on life. And in seventh grade, uh, I thought to myself, well, I'm going to be the one who, uh, converts him back or who saves my brother. Mm. So I started, um, 
going to, I was homeschooled. This is a key part of the story. Okay. I was homeschooled. Um, so I started going to the library and I started picking out philosophy books. So I started reading like con- the continental philosophers. Um, I really got um, into Descartes. I started reading about uh, postmodernism um, because I was going to use apologetics to save my face or to save my brother. And in the midst of all of that, I started actually looking at um, the whole idea of language and cultural language and how that plays into um, how we understand God. And so then I started looking at some major religions. Um, And by eighth grade, I had completely warped and twisted my mind and realized, like at least this was the conclusion that I came to, realize that the the church and the Christian church and even more specifically the Nazarene faith that I found myself in was the language that was given to me to understand and to express my experience with the divine mm-hmm. and with the people around me. And so I I had what I would call it a, a sanctifying experience. Mm. So I wanted to kind of commit myself to the church and be all in. Well, when an eighth grader says, hey, I want to commit myself to the church, most people are like, oh, so you're called into ministry. And then because I was in eighth grade, everybody else took it one step further. And they're like, so you want to be a youth pastor? Mm. Um, and it was funny because I was like no, I don't want to be a youth pastor. Like I just told them that all the time. I was like, I have no desire to be a youth pastor. I was like, I don't like being a teenager right now. Why would I want to work with him for the rest of my life? Um, and also cause I was homeschooled. I think I've said that already, but I right. think it's key. Um, so I, uh, I was like, well, I, I guess I'm called to the church, but, um, but I don't know if it was youth pastor, but that was kind of what people were kind of pushing on me. So I always thought that, especially at that moment, that because of the experiences that I was feeling, then that I was, that I should go into ministry. Mm. And I would say that that was kind of my soft call into ministry. And then um, by ninth grade, there were some issues that were going on at Denver First Church, some political junk that started affecting my pastor, Tim Stearman. It started affecting the two youth pastors at the church, Blair Spindle and Tim Snowbarger. Mm. Um, and it started affecting some of my friends and, and their parents and how they were involved and staff at the church. And I still had in the back of my mind, I mean, I had these four church splits before I was fourth grade. Um, and by ninth, so by ninth grade, um, I had given up on converting my oldest brother because he and I had a lot of conversations and we just talked a lot. And part of the reason why he was so disillusioned by the Christian faith was because of the politics that he was experiencing where he was at in his location. Mm. And then, so I thought to myself and I had this conviction that maybe my call to the church could be a call into leadership where I didn't play the political game Mm. and where I placed people above position or above the quote-unquote health of the institution. Mm. I think that answers the question. So kind of keep going from there. How did you end up at SNU? I, so that was ninth grade. Um, the turmoil at Denver First Church continued to happen. Um, Tim Snowbarger left the church and planted a non-denominational church in Denver. Blair and I just kept talking. Everybody always told me, well, we'll talk about it with you when you're older. Which, by the way, I'm kind of bitter by that. Like, mm. I still like that's one of the major memories that I have of my high school career. Is every time I asked what was going on, everybody's like, "Well, we'll talk about it when we're old, when you're older." Mm. Turns out that was also a lie because they still don't talk about it with me because mm. they don't want to remember what happened. 
Um, and also people were realizing that I probably was, um, I probably had too much of a mind for my own good and that I probably shouldn't be a youth pastor. So like by like 10th grade, they stopped kind of pushing me to be a youth pastor. Mm. Um, but I was like, I mean, I was active in the church. I, I loved what I was doing. Um, it was all around good, even in the midst of those turmoils, which I mean, as every, I think anybody, hopefully most people who listen to this podcast, I mean, it's those, it's those turmoils and the, the difficult situations of life that shape you and form you. Mm. Um, I mean, at least I believe that notice for me, I'm not talking about all the happy moments that brought me into ministry. I'm talking about these, <laughs> uh, these moments that have shaped me that are kind of dark yeah. without going too much into detail because I know you told me not to limit myself, but we have, we have short amount of time. Um, it was apparent that I had a knack for kind of the abstract thought, mm. um, in my life. And I, uh, applied to a couple places, um, that they all accepted me. They all gave me some scholarships. However, Blair and Talia Spindle told me that I should go to SMU and they told me about the intern program, which like it basically by the end of your, of your senior year, you have all of your tuition paid for. And you get to do ministry while going to school because it's kind of like an easy setup um, for church work. And then Todd Brandt, who was a, uh, a recruiter at SNU, he started working on me. And even with the intern program, I still got a couple. I was still getting more money from a couple other schools. Um, but then eventually... They paid. They paid most of what I needed to go to SNU. I figured it was fun to go to because that's where my brother went to, and so I was kind of familiar with it. Um, and I could always go somewhere else for like my postgraduate degrees. Um, people from larger, more academic schools had a good view of the SNU theology department. Yeah. Um, when I was looking at it, they probably still do. It's still a great department. Um, but they they did at the time, so I wasn't worried that going to SNU and getting a theology degree would hinder anything else. Right. Um, and I thought it would be fun. It was a smaller university than all the other universities that I looked at, so mm. practically, it was just the place to go. I mean, and I had, and that was a hard. It was a hard choice for me, mm. again because, um, like in my life, it's not. I don't necessarily get black and white calls like you need to do this it's always kind of open so like my call into ministry was kind of like a sanctifying moment you're called into the church and then it kind of got a little bit more clear and it's like well you're called to be in some form of leadership in the church but it was never like distinct or clear um and then i had to, to get into the intern program i had to write a call paper and for Doug Samples to have read that call paper, I mean, I don't even remember what it said, but it was probably just as convoluted as this interview right now. <laughs> um, and and so I had to write that. And then he like sent us this book called Call Waiting, which was a compilation of interns who had gone through his program and their calls. And I was just like blown away by these people and how specific their calls were. Um, you know, like we had friends who were, you know, they knew what village they were called to in Africa to be a missionary. Yeah. Um, and I was like, I, uh, I don't even have that. And so going to school, like going to SNU, I didn't have that either. I mean, I had options. I, uh, Starbucks had wanted to open up two stores in Montana, the, their first two stores in the Mon in Montana. And they wanted me to be one of the leaders of a star team. Um, and then take a store. I mean, I had opportunities to go to a couple other universities and then I had an opportunity to go to SNU. Um, and so I just had an options and I chose SNU. So I got there, got to SNU, um, was raised and matured even more into the church of the Nazarene. So where did you go from there? So, um, I got stuck in the Church of the Nazarene. A couple professors, again, they told me that I should get my master's in the Church of the Nazarene. 
um, and then work on my PhD somewhere else. And uh, I just didn't get a lot of money anywhere else um, because master programs are really expensive. Uh, And I got most most of my master's paid for at NTS. So I went to NTS, uh, Nazarene Theological Seminary, up in Kansas City for a year. And I hate to say it, but like I just started jumping around from church to church. Um, I went from Kansas City Central. Um, I went to a church in Guymon, Oklahoma. I stayed there for, I think, like three years. Um, had a rough patch with the Oklahoma district. Um, went to Southern Ohio. Um, stayed there for for uh, for four years, and now I'm in Durango. I definitely jumped over a lot, but I'm here in Durango now. Well, tell me, tell me kind of the story of of Durango. How you ended up there? What the place is like? It's definitely a a unique little church. Um, about 10 years ago, they sold their building, which was in the middle of the town. And they bought a larger plot of land, which is uh, like southeast of town. Okay. Um, because that's where the, the projected growth of the town is heading. Mm-hmm. Um, and they built a building. And then in 2008, the... Um, economy crashed. There was the Great Recession. Part of the reason why this church had been so large when they sold their building and bought land was because they had a relationship with a non-denominational church in town, and that pastor had moved to South Carolina, and so everybody in that church plant, they were meeting like in a gymnasium or something. They just all moved to the Nazarene church. Mm. Uh, And then once the building was completed here and the recession hit, that pastor came back to town. So everybody that was here at the Nazarene church that was from that church just kind of went back to meet with that pastor where he was meeting and they started meeting in a a movie theater. Wow. Um, The way that they, the way that they sold their property and bought property, there was some sketch things that took place. The pastor stayed for a couple of years after building um, the new building, then he felt called to go to Wichita. So he left and went to Wichita. Um, and then another pastor came and stayed for like 18 months. And, uh, I don't know what really happened. I think there's just like some different, like clash of personalities. And then he left. And then, so the church had this major, mortgage payments not a lot of people they had just gone through two pastors they just realized that they were in a lawsuit with the state of colorado because a family that was tithing heavily declared bankruptcy and then the state of colorado there's some sort of law which states that like like the church itself had to prove that they weren't harboring money for this family that declared bankruptcy because the family was giving like more than 15% of their GDP, um, not gross domestic product, gross domestic, gross income to the church. Small churches don't have really good track, like giving records. We had great giving records, but we still couldn't prove that this family like that we weren't harboring money for this family. So they were, so the state of Colorado was suing us for $50,000 worth of Mm. income that this family had given to us. Mm. Uh, So they were in the middle of a lawsuit. They had a huge mortgage, not a lot of people, a big old building, southwest of town. The town stopped growing. The town is also a very much like walk and bicycle town like people walk and ride their bikes everywhere. Um, And so they also lost a lot of people that lived in town. I mean, man, it was just a, uh, um, yeah, it was just a mess. And I, I haven't really gotten into it, but I'm not your typical Nazarene pastor. I bring a lot of different things into 
my ministry and into my life. Um, and so I think I was kind of like a Hail Mary for them. Mm. Um, so they, there was a couple people on the district, like at the, like they knew who I was because I was raised on the district, on the Colorado district. So I was asked to put in my resume and then we went through some, my wife and I went through some interviews with the church. We had, it's really funny, like when you go, like when you interview at a church, it's, it's a lot like first dates, like the church puts on their best, you know, their best face, uh, and they get all dressed up and look really pretty, um, and the same for the pastors that are being interviewed, they do the same thing. And you mm-hmm. kind of want to talk about like your best attributes mm-hmm. and like your best life experiences. Um, <clears throat> and the church does the same. And we kind of, my wife and I were at a point where we like, this was our last, this was our last ditch effort. So this was almost kind of like a hail Mary for us as well. Mm-hmm. Like we were going to do this or we were just going to stop with the church of the Nazarene. I mean, and there is like an accumulative amount of stories that lead into why we were at that point in our lives. Um, so we were just kind of ourselves. We told them everything that we were, that we are, our beliefs, our convictions, which run really well with the theology of the Church of the Nazarene. But traditionally for the past 40 years, probably contradict some practices or held um, folk beliefs of the Church of the Nazarene. Yeah. Um, so we shared all of that with with our with the congregation, and they kind of did the same for us. Like they shared a whole bunch of their stuff and like where they were at, and mm. really good match because we were both openly honest with, like overly honest with each other. Um, and they brought us they brought us here. Um, this is probably. This changed. So up until this point, I always had options and I always had choices. Um, And I tended to just go where I felt like I needed to go or choose the choice that I needed to choose that kind of like made most sense for everything around. This was like the first time in my life where it wasn't a choice, but it was like, well, we need to go here, Mm. which is interesting. And so that happened back in 2014. Uh, and then I came here and uh, I spent the first year really just trying to get to know the people and get to know their backstories and listen to them. And I really love Durango. Like it's just a town that fits well for me and my personality, even though it's on the Western Slope and I grew up on the Front Range. Um, it was just a good, it's just been a good place for me. Um and then about a year into it, uh, I was figuring out a way to motivate people in the church that I pastored. Um, I was looking at my at my at my call as as a as a pastor, and I had another moment where it wasn't a choice, but it was kind of like a, this is what I needed to do. And it was like you need to become bivocational, so you need to take another job. Eventually, so that eventually you could cut your salary in half and use that to hire on another bivocational pastor. And you need to motivate your church to kind of embody the gifts that they have been given. And so you need you need to go into a you need to find a second career. Mm. Um, and that stems from a lot of stuff. Like, so I remember I was. I was reading Soul Tsunami when I was back at home in high school. Have you ever read Soul Tsunami? Yeah. Yeah, she's shaking her head. Yes, she's on mute right now, so it's because it's better quality. (laughs) FYI, the secrets of the trade. Sorry, I told them. Um, So uh, she has read Soul Tsunami. It's it's a book by Leonard Sweet. It's one of his older books, I believe, um, because I remember reading it when I was a lot younger. And I, th- I think it's that book that mentions something about how, like, the new generation of pastors are going to be bivocational. 
mm-hmm. I think it's that book. I could, I've told this story a couple times and I'm always like, I think it's that book. I should probably figure out if it's that book so I can quote the right person. <laughs> anyway, and I was like, what is bivocationalism? That's such a weird word. And I looked it up um, because I was homeschooled and I do that whenever I don't understand a word. And it talked about having two vocations or two callings. And I'm like, that's really cool. And that makes a lot of sense. And that would be so good because that means that like most of the budgets that churches spend on staff could actually go even more into ministry. Um, then, and I was on, I remember I was at KC central and I was, we were going through budgets and I looked at the budget and it was like, like 70% of the budget of that church was to salary, was to staff salaries. Um, and granted it's a large church. I get that, but it was like, it just blew my mind and every church that I was at, I was always like, man, there's got to be a better way to do this. I recognize mm-hmm. I recognize the benefits of paying pastors what they're worth. I'm yeah. not critiquing that at all. I recognize the validity of having professional theologians. I think that's a great thing. I'm not critiquing that at all. What I am critiquing is the easy habits that the body of Christ can get into by paying people to become professional Christians and do the work of the church for them. Mm. And then also just the amount of money that we spend on pastors. And we're still not even doing a good job of supporting our pastors in the Church of the Nazarene. Yeah. So, like, we spend all this money on our pastors, but we're still doing a bad job of supporting them. Because most of our pastors in our Church of the Nazarene don't have ha- ha- uh, good health insurance. You know, have salaries that can't even help them to buy a home yeah. and pay back their student loans for the amount of debt that they get into. Right. So there's all this stuff that goes into it, and we're overworked. And if you're a full-time pastor, it's almost like people expect you to work 60 to 70 hours a week. You almost push, if you're a good pastor, you almost you almost put those um, put those expectations on yourself because you want to justify the amount of money that you're getting paid for that. Um, all of that was going on in my mind, so it was just ridiculous in my life, in and in my mind. And so I wanted to change. I wanted to change and rework the system. I didn't want to complain about not having good health insurance. I didn't want to complain about being on Medicaid because for the past four years, the salaries that I was getting from the church were below poverty level. Mm. Um, And yet I was expected to work full time and I have a family. I didn't want to blame the body of Christ for the model that I think clergy were just as much responsible for for creating as anybody else yeah i didn't care about being defined as a professional i knew i was a professional i have degrees and a room that smells like rich mahogany to prove that i'm a professional (laughs) um it doesn't smell like rich mahogany i wish it did um (laughs) smells like cat pee because there was a cat that stuck in my office for like seven days (laughs) um trying to get that clean that odor out good luck with that uh, it, uh, and I wanted the church to know that like they had just as much as a, of a responsibility to, um, to embrace the body of Christ and to build it up as I do. Yeah. So like an easy phrase, you know, like it's Ephesians four and Paul's like, we all have been given these gifts. Um, I think it just says we've been given these gifts, but if you read it in Greek, it says we all have been given these gifts to build up the body of Christ. And they're like, yeah, but we expect the pastor to embody all of these gifts to build up the body of Christ. And I was just tired of that. And I know not all churches are like that, but I think a lot of the churches in North America are like that. So all of those reasons kind of just flooded into my mind and into my heart. And I wanted to change, I wanted to change the part of the church that I was responsible for. Yeah. And that was my local congregation. So I told the I told the church board. They all looked at me with big eyes and question marks, but I, that happens anyway on a regular basis with me. So I just ran with it um, and started talking with them and leading them down what it would look like for me to become a bivocational pastor and for them to become a bivocational church. Mm. Also, in the midst of that, there was a whole lot of garbage that was going on in our media about police officers mm. and. I knew that I could not adequately speak to police officers because I had no clue what they did on a regular basis. Yeah. 
Um, I am a strong, hardcore person of nonviolence. I'm not a pacifist. I think pacifism is an elite term that has been over the years since Gandhi and Martin Luther King have been construed for rich, educated, privileged people to use to justify their desire to not get their hands dirty. Mm -hmm. So I don't use the term pacifist. I use the term nonviolent person. I have been a nonviolent person, I don't know, I mean like most of my life, right, Brittany? Shake yes. your head yes. Yes. Since you've known me at least. Yeah. Right. Um, so, however, in the midst of that, I, one of my best friends, uh, he was working on his PhD, um, not from Southern Methodist University, but the college, not from SMU, but the college connected with SMU, like the university connected with SMU. I'm not sure what it's called, but it's down in Dallas. Um, Perkins? He was working on his P. maybe. It might be Perkins. That might be it. He was working on his PhD in economics and theology. So it was like a, a joint PhD through those two departments. Wow. Um, and he was he had spent a decade in Africa, in Uganda, uh, working with local with a local well project. So it wasn't an international water project. It was a local water project that mm. like locals had started. Um, and he was he worked with them for a decade in Uganda. And he was his PhD had to do on a theological level, it had to do with the difference basically between justice and righteousness. Mm. And then he goes into like an economic and practical level and talks a lot about um, water. And one of the things that he does, and I love this, and anybody who goes to SNU or who's ever had a friendship with Marty Michelson, um, would almost like they should be offended by the, this next statement, but he disagrees with Walter Brueggemann's um, myth of scarcity and liturgy of abundance. Mm. Like he just flat out like critiques the hooey out of it in this dissertation. <laughs> um, and so we're talking about it and I was offended by it when he first brought it up uh, because I love that article um, it has go gone into so much. It's probably one of the foundational papers of my later Christian years, mm. um, just because it's so true. Yeah. Um, if you don't know what it is, Google the myth of scarcity and the liturgy of abundance and read it. But what he was saying was, on a on a abstract theological level, what Walter Brueggemann is saying is absolutely correct. There is more than enough. Yet we live into this myth. He said, and he said, theologians for most of Western society live out of that reality. Um, they live out of an abstract kind of like third tier view of the world. Yeah. Um, and it's because they're usually come from a privileged socioeconomic class. They usually are not on the end of oppression. Mm. Uh, on the wrong side of oppression, they usually come from the groups that do the oppressing. So that was his major argument. And he goes into like all of these different theologians that talk about it. But then, which is really cool, and this fits with like my thesis, was then we started talking about post-colonialism. And we started looking at like third world theologians. Um, and again, this is like the second level of friendship with Marty Michelson. Like once you get past the first level, then you have the second level where he starts talking about all these like third world issues and people and um, theologians. And he leads you down this dark path and introduces you to like liberation theology. And everybody's like, you really should be careful of liberation theology. And I'm not sure why. Um, and then I figured out why. And anyway, that's a tangent. You might need to edit that out. Um, we, uh, so we were talking about all of this. We went into uh, post-colonialism. And he said, the fact of the matter is, is that even though on an abstract level, things like God's love is sufficient, he is in a God of abundance, scarcity is a myth, righteousness is our goal, the reality is we live in a world where love is lacking, where people aren't loved, where injustice occurs 
and where people live in their reality is scarcity, such as they don't have clean water to drink. And like in that moment, then I was like, it hit me from a different aspect where I was like, I live in a world where I don't have to worry about violence because I'm privileged. Mm. And there are people who operate in a violent world all the time so that I can live in a nonviolent world. Yeah. I, so I was just convicted by that. And I was like, well, that's garbage. And I need to figure out how to address that. All that to say, my second career was law, was law enforcement. Uh, that, was my, that was part of being bivocational. And I went into that career because I wanted to, one, figure out what the people in my church were going through who were police officers, wanted to have a voice on some sort of level where I could um, validate the critique, but then also critique um, the critics with what they were saying and just be a part of some sort of social change slash enlightenment. Um, now granted I live in Durango, Colorado. It's a tourist town. A lot of people don't realize the amount of crime that takes place in Durango. I didn't know the amount of crime that occurred here, like felony level crimes until I became a police officer. Mm. But still, as far as Durango goes, it's not like LA. Like, we don't pull people out of their cars regularly at gunpoint because they have murdered people um, or because they have a car full of loaded weapons or drugs or anything like that. Like that stuff doesn't occur. So it's not an overly violent town, but I was convicted um, that I was nonviolent because I never really had to utilize those convictions mm. So I went into a career that would make me, that would challenge those convictions and push me to a place to live in the tensions of the world that are very much a reality. Even if on one level we want to say that they don't have to be a reality, which I still am like that, I don't believe that violence leads to nonviolence. I don't think that you can have lasting peace through violence. I think violence is the tool of the empire to keep people in bondage through sex, money, and power. However, the reality in which we live in is that even though we say that there is a world where nonviolence is stronger than violence, violence still occurs. And so I wanted to live in that tension and embrace it and see how my convictions held up. And so I jumped into police work, to a very violent profession. Um, and man, when you willingly live in tension, it can, it's, it's a fun struggle, uh, but it's worth it. So. Well, tell me about And it, it. really makes for great preaching. <laughs> Sorry. I'm sure that's true. What kinds of lessons have you learned um, since you've started this? So I've only been doing it for a year. Okay. And I've been trying to, and a lot has been going on. Uh, I mean, I'm trying to learn a new career uh, that takes, that people say on average takes about five years to really actually get a handle on. Mm. I am trying to transition a church from being what we would quote, say like a traditional church into a non-traditional church. I am attempting to hire a person right now who I'm not sure he knows what he's getting into, but hiring staff is just ridiculous to begin with, but add that onto the fact that it's into a bivocational position and I'm transitioning the church into a bivocational church, and I'm a police officer. Um, I don't necessarily, I haven't necessarily had a lot of time to sit down and to formulate my thoughts or to get or to wrap my mind around everything that's going on. Mm. However, the lessons that I have learned, they're kind of basic and they're simple, but it's like if you treat people with respect and dignity, it'll go a long way. Mm that a lot of people have been dehumanized and that's a lot of the reasons 
why they think or they act the way that they act. And validating them is a way to usher in the kingdom in this world. Mm. And I say that from both standpoints. I say that as when you do that to a police officer, it's powerful. When you validate a police officer, because law enforcement are dehumanized all of the time. And I'm not just saying, you know, like, stripe on the back of your window. I'm saying, like, actually sit down and talk with a person and recognize that they're more than just a badge. Um, So when you humanize a police officer, it goes a long way. But when you humanize, you know, the, the tweaker down the street, it goes a long way. When you can de-escalate a situation just by simply spending the time to listen, it goes a long way. Now, it's, it's ridiculously hard. I have to clarify with you. Like, I'm not like, I'm not this amazing police officer who dances around on golden shoes and when I show up, everybody gets happy. Um, like, I have my moments where I'm stressed, I'm angry, I'm tired of dealing with that percentage of population that makes life difficult for everybody and for themselves. And I see that. And sometimes I lose it on people. Um, not lose it in like a Rodney King way. Your eyes, Brittany's eyes just got really big. And I, I don't mean, I don't mean like that way. Like I don't. No, I, don't I totally knew what you meant. People in that sense. Right. Um, but I get frustrated and I get upset. And um, I mean, and I have moments where I break. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and it's not always, it's not always pretty. But again, I think that that's the, uh, I don't know. I, I honestly, that might not be what everybody's called to, but I definitely know that that's the type of life that I'm called to. Uh, because I can't, I can't live in the constructed worlds that we try to mitigate on social media or in our churches or in our families and ignore what else is going on like and and i think it's so easy to get caught up into these into these false worlds where we try to be happy where we try to let our beliefs and our convictions be validated and we cultivate happier places and for the most part, they are happy. I mean, uh, but I think they, I think in doing that, we miss out on the very struggles that, that make us human, the very struggles that we could actually be a part of the change in and so on. So like, like it's so easy to go, I mean, it's so easy to go and volunteer at like a soup kitchen once a month and pat yourself on the back and then hop in your hop in your Escalade and drive away and go to your half a million dollar home and eat pizza on your granite top and be like, man, the world's a beautiful place. I've done good. Um, Or it's so easy to, you know, go on a two week long mission trip and be like, oh, these people changed me. I needed them more than they need me. Right? Like that's the common testimony that happens when people come back from a work and witness trip. And then continue to to consume 86 percent of the world's resources or at least participate in that consumption and i think that like in order to truly understand the type of life that jesus lived or called us into we have to be willing to find those places in our lives that call us to live in the tensions of the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of god and for me, it was becoming a bivocational pastor who is a nonviolent police officer. Mm. And it's super scary. It's a giant struggle. I get very little sleep. When you messaged me at 9.07 and said, looking forward to meeting you in 30 minutes, I was sleeping <laughs> because I got home at 4 o'clock this morning. Um, oh, <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, that's today. <laughs> it's Thursday. So it's 
tell me more about the part where you're transitioning your church to be a bivocational church. Talk to me about what that means to you and where you hope to see your church down the road. I'm sorry that I'm breaking up. It's just internet in Southwest Colorado. Nope, that's fine. Uh, so I spent a long time, not a long time, but I spent like six months trying to lead the church into what it meant to be bivocational. I shared with them a lot of the same convictions that I've just kind of shared in this conversation that we've had and also utilized the benefits of, you know, I highlighted the benefits of like, oh, you'll be paying me less money. There will eventually become another staff pastor. You're not, you're not required to attend church gatherings every time the doors are open because the whole desire is for you to be the church where you're at. So, you know, go to your 4-H club, join the Boy Scouts, have people over to your house regularly and utilize all those moments and times to be the church. And that's what's expected of you. And then every once in a while, communally, like, gather collectively and we'll confess Jesus as Lord and Christ and break some bread and share some wine and remind each other that the world in which we live in is not what God intended, but we have the ability to participate in renewing and making all things new, which, you know, like people do half of that all the time. Like average attendance in America, I think is like twice a month. And that's for like active churchgoers. Right. So this was almost a way of validating that they only have to show up twice a month, but encouraging them to use all the rest of that time to embody the kingdom where they're at. Mm, that's interesting. Um, and that they don't need me to be the kingdom for them, but they have already been given the tools and are being shaped into the kingdom if they buy into what they believe. Yeah. Um, you know, people like they don't think about their church going bivocationalism the way that me as their pastor thinks about the church being bivocationalism. I think about it all the time. I'm reading all sorts of books about bivocationalism and what that means. Yeah. Um, I'm talking to people about it. They're not. So it takes them a lot longer to pick up on that stuff than, than what I want them to do. Sure. So even in, in bringing on this other, or at least bringing this other guy into the picture to interview him, they're like, wait, you're serious? <laughs> like, about being <laughs> bivocational? <laughs> I mean, like, they're still, like, it's like I have to have the conversations over and over again. You know, it's the, we do, it's the, it's about doing small groups differently now, and, like, and small groups are not just, like, are not just home groups or excuses to get together outside of the church building with people in your church. There are opportunities to invite your neighbors and your friends into your house um, and to embody practices like forgiveness and reconciliation. Yeah. There are opportunities to, when you have conflict, to not just either ignore it or leave, but to stick with it and, and recognize that conflict is healthy and it's okay. And that's really hard to do because we have, we've had a huge turnover. So in January, there was the, a murmuring committee that was going on and like our tithing had decreased and I just had enough and I was just upset. And I said, listen, like for the next two months, we're going to talk about where we're going and what we're doing and what the plans are. I know that some of you are upset with where we're going and what we're doing. But you guys all called me to be the pastor, and it was a 100% call, you know, back in 2014 for me to come here. Uh, sorry, it wasn't 100. It was like 99.9% .9 because there was one person who voted no for me to come, and then that person called the DS and cried and said they should have voted yes. Uh, and I don't know who that person was, but that's what my DS told me. And then, so anyway, I was like, you guys called me here. You guys wanted me to be your pastor this is where we're going and this is where I like feel called to go. And I mean, and so in two months we can, we're going to do this. We're either going to decide that you no longer want me to be your pastor or 
we're going to shake hands and those who don't want to be a part of this community anymore, you know, we'll pray for you and we'll send you off in a loving way. Or you're going to learn how to be a positive voice of critique from the inside and be the people that point out our blind spots because we need that. We all need that. Like we all need positive criticism. So you're going to learn how to be positive instead of negative. Or you're just going to get on board and we're going to move forward. Funny, people only heard two of the four things. (laughs) (laughs) They only heard leave or get on board. (laughs) And so I had to like keep reiterating that that's not what I said. I said these four things. And in the midst of that, we had some new people that were showing up. And so I had to kind of like, again, like retell them our journey and where we where we've been and where we're going and but then we also had eight families leave and it was Mm. um but it was refreshing (laughs) like that's horrible it was refreshing in one sense because some people came to me and they shared with me why they were leaving and we cried together and prayed with each other and hugged and they left it was sad at some points because some people just left and they didn't tell me why and I had to go find them and then when I talked to them they like just made up some excuse that probably wasn't lame in their mind but it was totally lame from my perspective Mm -hmm. and then there was another group of people that left and tried to get everybody in the church to follow them and the majority of the church was like, why are you trying to get us to leave? We like where we're at and we like where we're going and we support Patrick. And so that all happened. Tithings increased after those people left. Um, numbers have increased, which like part of being bivocational and turning the church into a bivocational church. I was like, we're no longer going to use numbers to judge success. So I stopped turning in numbers to the district. Mm. Um, We stopped counting how many people showed up to worship. I was like, it's not about numerical value anymore. Mm. And so even though tithing has increased and numbers have increased, I'm still like, there's so much more work to be done because we, we have to again, just redefine our understandings of success. And, and that takes a lot of reminding for my part. Yeah. Um, and I do that in so many ways. So like I use our time gathering. I just am con like, I feel like, like part of me pastoring is being an MC and reminding people why we do what we do when we gather. Um, so that when we go, we can still be who we're called to be. Mm. Um, we're not meeting this Sunday because we're going to be um, doing service projects throughout our county, um, which also means that we're not, you know, we're not receiving any income this Sunday. Mm. And for a small church with a large mortgage, that's kind of a big deal. Yeah. But I'm like, but it's not about money or how much you give. It's about what we do. And then also confirming with people that like, like the building is not our identity. So I plan on still being your pastor, even if we lose this building. Yeah. Um, and for them to hear that is one thing for them to understand that is another. And I mean, and that's the same goes for me, but the beauty of it is that even though I live in the parsonage, um, and part of the salary from the church is helping me pay down the debt that I've accumulated by pastoring in the Nazarene church for 10 years. Uh, that, that I don't care if we lose that salary or if I, if we lose the building, um, because I've got other things going on in the background. So it just, I mean, it's all kind of a beautiful mess that I'm participating in. I love that. Yeah. What would you say to somebody who's thinking about becoming bivocational or taking their church on a similar journey? Uh, I would say totally do it. Make sure that you communicate, that you overly communicate. Um, I mean, do as much as you possibly can. Like, 
put down your thoughts and ideas in writing, vocalize your thoughts with every single person that's a part of your church on a regular basis. Like you almost have to become a salesman for it, which I hate using that terminology, but you do like every time you're with a person in your congregation, you have to share with them your ideas and your thoughts and you have to talk about it again and again and again. You can't over communicate enough, communicate it from the pulpit integrated into the sermons that you preach into the announcements that you make into the reasons why you do what you're doing. Mm. So just overly communicate it. And then like, talk with me. I would, I would love to talk with anybody who wants to, who wants to do this. Yeah. Um, I don't I'm not going to have answers, but I'm going to be a good sounding board. Talk with Matt Price. I know he's doing it um, out in Mount Vernon and he knows like 60 other people who are doing it. Yeah. Um, so talk with, talk with them. Uh, Hugh Halter is a guy who, um, like he wrote a couple books, but he's really easy approachable. Share definitely. I mean, I think this kind of goes without saying, but I think it's really important is you have to share it with your spouse if you're married and you have to make sure that your spouse understands and your family in general understands the amount of pressure that it takes to become bivocational. Yeah. And then you have to be incredibly intentional about how you manage your time. Like you have to be present when you're with your family. You have to be present when you're with your church. You have to be present in your other job. If you can find a job that can like support you that you don't have to be present in, man, take it. That's awesome. Um, I have to be very present in my job. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise bad things happen. Right. Um, recognize that you are changing the definition of what it means to be pastor. Mm. And so you have to understand what you're redefining the role of pastor as. Yeah. I think in our denomination, that's kind of open. Um, so you can define it in a lot of different ways. The way that I define it as is that I am the, I equip people to go and be the church where they're at. Therefore, I have to do like the practical leadership side of administration, but I don't have to do all the practical practical sides of administration. So there's a guy in my church who he worries and deals with finances mm. and he doesn't get paid for that. That's just something that he is passionate about. And so he does all of that. Mm. Um, there's another person in my church that loves office work. So she kind of does all of the office work that needs to be done um, and she doesn't get paid for that. Yeah, there is a there are a couple people that um, if you're a small church pastor, you know, raise your glasses because you're going to understand this. I don't clean the church anymore uh, and I don't mow the lawn. And so there are people in our church who clean and mow and it's OK for them to do that, even if they work two jobs, <laughs> like it's OK to let them do that Yeah, and don't do it. So give people the opportunities to do those practical things so that you don't have to do that or at least that's what I did yeah because I'm not doing that anymore right because my role is I give people the tools necessary to be the church yeah um so I don't mow the lawn now if I need to mow the lawn I mean I will it's not like I'm like I'm never going to touch a lawnmower again <laughs> I mean like I am working on the irrigation system for my whole property this week um in my free time uh, so I can do that. You can do that stuff, but don't let that be your priority. So just change, change your view of pastor and what that means, especially if you're in a small church. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't sum that up in bullet points. I'm sorry, but that was pretty close. I think that's the advice. Okay, cool. I like it. Well, if somebody wanted to, um, oh, I skipped how, why do you stay in the church of the Nazarene? That's fine. You don't have time. Um, no, I mean, I can, I can tell you briefly. Do you want me to tell you briefly? Yeah. Okay. So the last question I ask everybody is, um, <laughs> what, what inspires you to stay in the church of the Nazarene? What is it that's keeping you here? Uh, they raised me, they educated me and now they're stuck with me is basically that. I love it. <laughs> like, I, I don't know where else I would go or why I would go anywhere else. Like, if I wasn't in the Church of the Nazarene, I'd be one of like 
people who's like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a part of any tradition whatsoever. And then they would like start asking me questions and then they'd realize that I was like from the Wesleyan tradition. And they're like, oh, so you're just a Wesleyan. And I'd be like, well, yeah. They're like, oh, where'd you get that from? Well, from the Nazarene church. Oh, okay. So I would still be defining myself even against the Nazarene church if I wasn't in the Nazarene church. So I'm Nazarene and I probably always will be Nazarene. Um, even if I didn't want to be Nazarene. So I might as well just stay in the denomination until it transforms into a healthy denomination or until it dies. And grace and peace to you. <laughs> Sorry, that was horrible. You might want to edit that last part. Uh, <laughs> well, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, ask you questions, track you down, where can they find you? How can they reach you? Uh, I mean, so you can just go to the webpage, faithcommunitynaz.church. And I think there's a link to my email, and I think there's a phone number um, that will that gets forwarded to my to my personal phone. If you call that number, make sure you leave a message because I don't call people back if they don't leave messages. Um, well, sure. Or email, yeah. So email me, um, or you, you can find me at Facebook on Patrick Patrick Ingle Patrick Glenn Ingle. I think you're gonna put you're gonna spell my name so. Because it's a weird spelling. Yeah, I'm sure they'll figure it out. Yeah, I think they will. People are smart enough to want to get it. So. Well, thanks for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Britt. <laughs>